What we talk about today is really important. It can be divisive. Um, it shouldn't be. Uh, not that we're not going to have differences of opinion or want to discuss it, but it should never get to the point where we're angry with each other and we break uh, fellowship with each other, God, because all of us that are in Christ are in Christ, and we're all on this journey. And so, God, I just pray that you would minister to us as we discuss this, as we look at a very important section of your scripture. And God, as always, I really do pray that you would just move me out of the way and, and that you would be the one that would speak today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, today we, uh, we, are, we are piggybacking. We've been doing, we've done five verses in three weeks, if you include today. We have really slowed down. So Romans 8.26 through 8.30, we spent three weeks on. Last week, Sean spent the entire message on just one verse. It, it, some people would say uh, it's, it's their favorite verse or the most important verse or the most well-known verse in the New Testament, and that's, and that's Romans 8.28. And, and what I want you guys to be aware of, and I'm going to say this over and over and over uh, during this message, is that Romans 8.28 is not just a standalone verse. It's in context with other verses. And so one of the reasons that Amy read 28, 29, and 30, even though we're just looking at 29 and 30 today, is because we need to understand Romans 29 and 30 in light of verse uh, 28. That's why we have them all together. And so Sean kind of set me up last week for this. And so the verses we look at today go like this. Paul writes, For those whom... He foreknew, he, God, predestined. There's that word. He predestined. Predestined for what? To be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And so that's what we're going to look at today. And I know that there are many people here uh, who, who have been wrestling with this idea of predestination and knowing that this word is in this passage. And so you're anticipating and you've been talking about it all week and you can't wait to find out what, what we're going to have to say about it. Um, there's a wonderful little book that's, I think, helpful in many respects. It was written, I think, in 1998 by Erwin Lutzer. Uh, it, the title of the book is The Doctrines That Divide. And each chapter is a look at various doctrines that over the last 2,000 years have tended to divide the church. So there's a chapter on baptism, there's a chapter on, on uh, the mother of Jesus, Mary, there's a chapter on whether or not Jesus is, uh, is God, there's a chapter on how is it that Jesus is uh, human, there's a chapter on all these different doctrines that have divided us as believers over the centuries. There are four chapters on predestination and free will. Four. So, Erwin Lutzer even gets it. He understands that this is like the major thing that we wrestle with, it seems like. Um, He starts those four chapters with this interesting story. I don't know if the story is necessarily true. He doesn't necessarily present it as true, but it is certainly illustrative of, of what can happen. Uh, He says there was this Christian conference and the idea was to bring Christians together to discuss predestination versus free will. And and very soon in the conference, the the conference degenerated into a shouting match between the two factions. And and so then they decided to break up into two groups. And so the predestination group went over here and the free will group went over there. And there was one guy that was kind of going, I'm not sure which one to go to. So he kind of goes over to the predestination group and he 
he's kind of standing on the outside, and then he kind of maneuvers his way in. And then suddenly somebody sees him and says, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I I came over here of my own free will. And they said, they said, be gone. Do not believe in free will. So he slinks away from there and he goes over to the other group and now he's maneuvering his way into the free will group and suddenly somebody sees him and says, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I was sent here. He said, be gone. You must come here only of your own free will. So now he's standing between the two groups and he's, he's feeling left out in the cold. And I will tell you, that's where a lot of people are on this. You may be here today, and you may be firmly in this camp or firmly in this camp. Some people call it Calvinists and Arminians. Uh, some people say doctrines of grace and, and whatever. You know, there's all kinds of different ways that we describe this. And many people have already decided very firmly which camp they're in. And they have their biblical texts for it. Or they have their feelings about it. Whatever it is. But there are a lot of people who are still just out in the cold. I've been been a Christian for 30 years, and I am still wrestling with this in many, many ways. I don't have all the answers. I look to Scripture to be sure, but I don't have every single last answer. But I do know what Scripture says and what Paul says, and so we're going to be looking at that today. And I will tell you, this is one of the good reasons why redemption, not just Arcadia, but all of redemption preaches verse by verse. Because we can't avoid or ignore the tough passages. And today's one of those tough passages. In fact, there have been scores of essays and books written about how pastors will, will, will uh, preach through the book of Romans and they will skip these verses simply because they feel they're too controversial to be able to stand up and say anything about them. Now, I'm not saying that because I've got all this courage and I'm willing to stand up and say something about it. That's, that's not it at all. I'm just saying that it's good that we wrestle with every bit of the text, and that's why we preach verse by verse. And I would, I would suggest to you that, that the big idea today is really this. Uh, uh, with these two verses, we have the undeniable affirmation of our security as believers in Christ Jesus. That what Paul is describing here is the undeniable affirmation of our security as believers. And we've talked about how all of Romans 8 is about the security that we have in Christ as believers. But this is the undeniable affirmation of that. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to have a lot of general discussion. And during this general discussion time, I would suggest that if you're in Romans, you also find Ephesians chapter 1. Because we'll kind of toggle back and forth between those two a little bit. So just have Ephesians 1 and Romans 8 uh, in front of you. So we'll do a little bit of general discussion, and then we're going to zero in on what people call the golden chain. And the golden chain is those five verbs that we find in 28 and 29, four new, predestined, called, justified, and glorified. So that's kind of where we're going to go. Not a lot of yucks and laughs today. It's going to be just straightforward. And I want to say a couple things right out of the gate in our general discussion, number one, we need to remember, as I've said, that these two verses are in the wake or in the context of verse 28. It's really important to understand that. Um, So many of us in the church have sort of a fortune cookie approach to the Bible. We'll just grab a verse and rip it out of its context and apply it to whatever we we think we need. And that's a problem. We have to understand how important context is. A lot of people want to take 29 and 30 and rip it of its context and then make it say things it doesn't necessarily say. Just like Sean said last week about verse 28, a lot of people want to rip it out of its context and just use it for whatever they want to make it say as well. 
So we have to understand that these verses are written in context. Maybe uh, we have a lot of real estate agents at Redemption Arcadia. Uh, those of you who are in the real estate business, you know that the three most important rules or laws of real estate are what? Location, location, location. The three most important rules or laws of rhetorical analysis or of understanding literature would be context, context, and context. So it's just very important that we approach that. And so here's what Paul says right before verses 29 and 30, which gives us the context. He says, and we know, in other words, this is a fact, and we know that for those who love God, as Sean said last week, this promise is only for Christians, for those who love God, all things work together for good. And the way the verb is constructed in there is that we understand that it's God who is doing the working. It's not fate or chance or us. It's God doing the working. In other, here you go. Let me just say this. In other words, verse 28 is about God. Now that may be a shock to many of you because so many of us have approached verse 28 for years saying that verse is about me. It's not about you. It's about God and what He does and what He is doing. We need to remember that. God is the one who does this. And then the second thing about Him working all things together for good is that it's His understanding of what is good. Remember, Sean talked about that last week as well. We all have an understanding of what we think is good. That's not what God is concerned with here. It's not that He doesn't like us and want to know, but He already knows. He already knows actually what is good for us as opposed to what we think is good for us. So it's going to be His good, not our good. So <clears throat> Paul writes, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. In other words, this is about His purpose and He's in charge. So that's the context of 29 and 30. And then the second thing I want to mention is this, it just seems to me as I've heard these verses taught in the past, what hardly ever gets mentioned about verses 29 and 30 is, that, is, is what we are predestined to, and that is to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. People just want to race to the golden chain and talk about those five words, which we will, and that's important. But, but rarely does anybody ever talk about this little middle part of this passage that is so important. So what does it mean when Paul says that, that um, Jesus is the firstborn? Well, this is not a statement about Jesus' essence. There have been people over, over uh, history who have attempted at times to look at that verse and say, wait a minute, Jesus can't possibly be God if he was born, if he's a firstborn. No, 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 no. Paul is using metaphorical language here. He's talking about Jesus' position of honor and privilege. He's the firstborn. This is, a, this is an important Hebrew colloquialism that was used all throughout the Old Testament. If you understand the importance of being the firstborn, you'll know what Paul is trying to get at. What he means is that Jesus is the exemplar upon which we focus. He's, he's primary. He's the priority. He's the one that we should be looking at. And we get conformed to him. Now, why would this be so important in our context today? I think that's an easy question to answer. Too many of us, people in the church and outside of the church both, even Christians do this, too many of us want to recreate Jesus in our image. We want to decide who Jesus is, and, and, and really what we end up doing is making Jesus look a lot like us. And that's a problem. No, 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 no. We are conformed to 
His image. I was just Wednesday up at the school, um, um, not the seminary, uh, the community college. I was in a conversation with a young guy who had all of these things that he was saying about Jesus. And, and I enjoy these conversations because I, I, I want to I dig in and, and see if I can maybe help people to see some things. And so I always just ask questions in that case. And I was asking, I said, well, well where are you getting these ideas about Jesus? What, what have you read about Jesus? And he said, I haven't read anything about Jesus. I said, well, then, then is it the, are you reading the Gospels? Is this where you're getting it? Because I've never seen any of this stuff. And, oh, no, no, no. I've never even picked up a Bible in my life. I wouldn't even know my way around a Bible. Well, where are you getting these ideas about Jesus? And he said, it's just what I think about Jesus. And he's got this image of Jesus that that he has in his mind. And it's funny how Jesus, Jesus, his Jesus agrees with everything that he thinks and looks a lot like him. Okay? Well, Well, that's a problem. God is calling us, he has called us to be conformed to Jesus. And so we need to look at who Jesus is. This is really important. And then he says that he's the firstborn among many brothers. Not only are we conformed to him by this golden chain, but we also, in being conformed to Jesus, we join a fraternal, familial relationship with Jesus. We have brotherhood and sisterhood with Jesus. We are kin. We are heirs. We are family. We're part of the body of Christ. And we need to understand that as well. So the two really important things we need to understand before we even get started is context. This is for God's purpose and His good. And secondly, it's to be conformed to Him. Now, let me say this too. Many people take this doctrine of election and they desire to construct a rational academic argument for it. Say, let's let's look at election or predestination or Calvinism, whatever you want, and let's come up with a rational, logical argument academic argument for why this is true. And I get that. I I understand that. I've done that myself. I've been to seminary. Granted, it wasn't Dallas Theological Seminary. It's like a pseudo-seminary Fuller. I get that, okay? You know, I I get that. But But they still made me do it at Fuller. I mean, we read a book or two at Fuller. And so I did this stuff, okay? And I understand that, and that's and that's an important exercise. But I will tell you that I've just grown and grown and grown. I still read the stuff, but I grow. I, I prefer to mostly let just Scripture speak for itself. What does God's Word say? Not, how can I weave an indisputable argument? And, and here's something that, that just hit me a couple of months ago. If I believed I could argue a better case for election than God's Word, then how could I also believe that all of salvation is God's work and not partly mine? You see, the two don't go together. Either God is sovereign or he's not. Either he's got this figured out or or he doesn't. He really doesn't need any help from me. So I I promise you, here's what I'm trying to do today. I'm going to do everything I can to let the text speak for itself while we unpack it. I'm also going to be citing other biblical texts, Ephesians, for instance. But I'll also just admit, this is not necessarily easy. I am going to get in the way sometimes. I will. In fact, Jackie's told me that's my special spiritual gift, over and above everything else, just getting in the way, okay? But someone has to talk about it, and that's going to be me. So even if you don't, even if you're not in this camp, okay, I would just ask that you'd pray for me as we, as we go through this. And, and here's one of the things that I, I wrestle, I really do wrestle with. I'm going to tell you about a, a, an incident that happened a, a little over a year ago, 
It's a common incident, though. It's a really common incident. And I don't, I don't say this to belittle anybody. I, 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 I want to tell this to help you understand how much emotion and feelings get involved in this exercise and where we have to sort of between um, what, is, what is said in the text and what is just really our emotion welling up in, in us. Uh, we had a couple that was uh, attending here a little over a year ago. They had attended for a couple of months, and then they went to Sean Mortensen's membership class. And they were in the second week of the membership class, and the second week is generally w- where we get into some doctrines that redemption affirms and believes in. And, they were, and Sean was talking about election. So as soon as the class was over, this couple came running up and grabbed me and pulled me aside and said, so you guys really believe in this election stuff, do, don't you? And I said, well, uh, you just came out of Sean's class, so I'm assuming he just kind of went through that with you. Didn't he walk you through all the biblical texts? And here's what he said. Yes, but I'm not concerned with what the Bible says. I know what the Bible says. What I'm concerned about, though, is what's fair. At that point, I mean, I just kind of shrug my shoulders and say, okay, I love you. We're not in the same camp. But I, I don't, if I can't bring up the Bible, I've got nothing. I concede. You win. Okay? This is why it's important that we have a text. Now, maybe the Bible's not your text, but at least have a text. Okay? That's a start. That's a beginning, anyway. If we allow just what we think is fair or right, to, de- to determine everything that we're going to do, then we got a problem because then you're going to run into somebody else who just thinks what's fair and right, and it's going to be different. Okay? So what we're going to look at is Scripture. Okay? So it's Romans 8, 28 through 30. Let me read it one more time. Again, reading what we had last week as well. Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So, here we go. Now, I will fully admit, this, you could say this is my opinion. I'm, and I'll say this. I, I believe it's challenging at best to read those verses and believe that God's call to us as Christians is simply to embrace the gospel if we want to, or if we feel like it, or if we're smart enough, or if we're worthy enough. Or, here's another one that we get kind of hung up on sometimes, if somebody really smart and clever evangelizes us. That, that, that that's how this, this call works. I think it's a challenge to, to, to read this the way it's written. Let me say it this way. The language here is straightforward in describing God's effectual call when summoning people. His effectual call. So what does effectual mean? It simply means that God has the authority and the power to make this happen. It is by His love, His will, and His purpose that He is going to make this happen. It's through His sovereignty. And I've said this many times before, regardless of anything else that we believe, we need to understand, okay, we do need to understand that God is sovereign, and if he's not sovereign, then he's not God. 
If he doesn't have all authority, then he's, then he's not God. Now, some, do not, some people do not see this as good news. Some people really don't see this as good news. And I understand that. It's something we need to wrestle with. But I would suggest to you that it is good news. Because if we had something to do with our salvation, then we could also have something to do with undoing our salvation. And that would be a problem. This chapter, chapter 8, is all about our security as believers. And if we had something to do with this, I guarantee you, chapter 8 could not be written. Because we would foul up our salvation one way or another at some point. This is all about God's ability to save us. All of Romans 8 is the security of the believer and there is no defeat. And that security comes from God. So these two verses that we look at, 29 and 30, describe the result of what happens when God works all things together for good for those who loved him, love Him and are called according to His purpose. And the ultimate goal, the ultimate purpose, the, the telos, the destination of this calling and saving, as I said, is clearly stated in verse 29, that we are conformed to the image of His Son. See, this again, this is all about God. This is about His glory. It's about His good and it's about His purpose. And I, and I know the frustration we can have with that. Some people would think, well, well that's really selfish and self-centered of God. That it's all about Him. Well, was it selfish and self-centered of him to sacrifice his son for you? I, I don't think so. See, see, our problem, the problem with hum, the human condition, the corrupt, fallen human condition, is that we don't really have a grasp of what good really is. What God's good really is. We assume it's us. We assume we have a clear vision of what is good. And if what we think is good would just happen, then everything would be, would be wonderful. But Paul says in, in Romans chapter 1 that, that in our corrupt nature, because of the fall, we have spent our entire lives exchanging the truth of God for a lie. And that's one of the lies, that we know better than God what is good. God knows what is good. So when God tells us what's actually true and good, we always find reasons to push back, to make excuses, to not believe, or to rationalize our own self-centeredness. As Paul says in, in Romans 1, we suppress the truth. We know the truth is there, and that word suppress in the Greek literally means to press down and to sit on. So that the truth has no way to get out. We exchange the truth of God for lies and then we spend our lives suppressing the truth. And so that's the, pro- that's the problem. You and I are the problem. We have to recognize that. It's Paul in 724 crying out, O wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Uh, you know the song, the wonderful song, uh, Amazing Grace, right? Amazing Grace. How sweet the sound that saves a wretch like me. That's biblical. That's from Romans 7.24, right? Okay. It's interesting. During the 90s, there was a big movement by worship leaders and pastors and other church leaders who changed the words of amazing grace to say, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, who saved a, anybody know? Soul like me. They changed the word wretch to soul, and the reason was because they didn't want the song damaging anybody's delicate self-esteem. That's exactly why they were doing it. That's 
a problem. Paul doesn't have low self-esteem when he cries out, what a wretch I am, who will save me from this body of death? He's, he's crying out in gratitude that it was God through his son who saved him. It's not a cry of desperation, it's a cry of gratitude. It's the gospel. I'm the one who screwed this up. I can't save myself. I need God to intervene. And that's exactly what has happened. So it is that he saved us as wretches and gave us, and gave us the soul that will end up in heaven. So now, the golden chain. John Stott, uh, the great preacher and author, calls this God's un- five undeniable affirmation of our security as believers. And here's what's interesting about these verbs. Every one of them is in the past tense. And so what Paul is writing here in these two verses is a narrative description of the Christian experience and its results. He's writing a narrative description of the Christian experience and, his, and its results. In other words, if you're saved, this is what has happened. And the first thing is that God foreknew you. Now, some of you are like, okay, great, get to predestination. The problem is, is that foreknew is actually the most misunderstood word in the chain. Predestination is the most controversial, yes, but foreknew is actually the most misunderstood word. The, the word here means that God foreknew people, not what they are going to do. A lot of people believe that when, when it says that God foreknew us, he somehow looked down the corridors of eternity and knew who was going to choose him, knew what we were going to do, and on that basis, that's how he predestined us. He knew what our actions would be. That's not what this word says. This word says that he knew us. He knew us. It's not a description of God knowing ahead of time what would happen, but rather in an Old Testament sense, this word is, is telling us that those he has called, he has always known. One commentator writes this, it's a choosing word, not a prediction word. It's a choosing word, not a prediction word. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. James Montgomery Boyce, who uh, wrote a commentary on Romans, one of the all-time great um, New Testament scholars, writes this, This word does not say that God foreknew what certain creatures would do, but rather that he knew them. It is not talking about human actions at all. On the contrary, it is speaking entirely of God and what God does. And I want you to just consider this. If this foreknowledge had to do with God knowing who would choose him, then then nobody would be saved because, because it's in complete contradiction if you think that somebody could choose him with what Paul has already written in Romans chapter 3. Here's what Paul writes in Romans chapter 3. I know it was a long time ago, so here you go. I'll remind you. No one is good, no, not one. No one is righteous, no one understands, no one seeks after God. So if that's true, and it is, then how could anybody choose God? And I think part of our problem is that you and I, as 21st century uh, Western individualists, we place so much importance on our ability to choose. We have freedom of choice. We, we can choose to be whoever we want to be. We, we can create our identity. It's all up to us. We determine our fate. And the problem is, is that the gospel stands in stark opposition to this way of thinking. Isaiah 55 says, God's thoughts are not our thoughts and our ways 
uh, God's ways are not our ways. What we need to remember is that our idea of theology and how it works and God's idea of theology and how it does work are more often than we realize two completely different things. And by the way, let me just say here, yeah, grace really isn't fair. Grace really isn't fair. And thank God it isn't. Thank God it isn't. Because what's fair is that I would be condemned because I'm a sinner. That's what would be fair. Here's here's what I want you to hear. God's grace is not an American marketplace phenomenon. God's grace is not an American marketplace phenomenon. We can't lay our grid over it and determine that that's how it looks. His grace is radical. It's mysterious. And that's actually a good thing. And we should engage and wrestle and not run from it. That's foreknew. Here's the word, predestined, the next word. It's the most controversial word. Bill Hybels, who's a, a pastor of a large church outside of Chicago and an author, some of you know who he is, he says this, the only way to get predestination out of the Bible is with scissors. And Romans 9 is coming, so hang in there. I mean, we, we got Romans 9, 10, and 11, which still engages this conversation for quite some time. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. He has predestined us for adoption according to the purpose of his will. The word predestined literally means to mark out with boundaries. And so it means that there is a a destination, a, a, a boundaried destination that we, are, that we are predestined for and that destination is to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what it is. We are to be conformed to Christ, to His life, His character, His spirit, who He is. So that's the location that we're predestined for, uh, to be conformed. It means that God predestined us for reconciliation, with Him through Jesus Christ for justification that we would have right standing before God that we would have fulfilled the law completely and perfectly that we're going to be restored and that we're going to be glorified because that's how we're conformed to Christ. Ephesians 11, uh, 1.11 says it this way, In Him we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. Another author, Robert Haldane, says this, God knows what will be because God determines what is. God knows what will be because God determines what is. And and I'll tell you, as I've thought about this, this is one of those things that I just, I, I think is interesting. I It's interesting to me that Christians are rarely bothered that God knew and chose the Israelites, but many of us are quite bothered that he chose us. We really wrestle with that. We really struggle with that. But he chose us, and he chose us out of love. He chose us out of his love for us. And and really, that that should humble us. should humble us. A lot of people say, if if you really believe in election, you're proud. 
you're filled with pride. And, and, and I would say, mm, that would be the wrong approach. I'm humbled that he would choose us, that he would choose to work through us and that he would choose to save us and to glorify us. A little story, this would be an intensity break for you right now so you can relax for about the next minute, okay? It's been pretty intense. Uh, there's a guy named Harry Ironside. Uh, he lived in the, in the 20th century. And during the middle of the 20th century, he was the uh, pastor of, the, of, the, of D.L. Moody's Bible Church in Chicago. And he, they were having an evening service once, and somebody got up and gave their testimony. And this man was, was talking about how uh, God had saved him and, and, and that the work of Christ was his justification. And so after the service, another man walked up to this guy and said, you know, I appreciate your testimony, but the problem is is that you gave yourself absolutely no credit in that testimony. You did your part, and you should have told us that. And the man replied by saying this, Oh, yes, I'm sorry. You're right. I should have mentioned that. I really should have said something about my part. My part was running away as fast as I could from God, and God's part was running after me until he caught me. It's it's when um, Schrader says that the only thing you and I bring to our salvation is our sin. And that's what God takes care of for us through Christ. So, so understand, if God's predestination of His children was based on Him knowing beforehand that we would decide on Him, His, so- his sovereignty has actually been removed from salvation and it becomes about us. And, and that's our tendency. We want things to be about us, but this is about God. Salvation is God's glory and we're told also that we are His glory. So then we get to this word called. We're called, and it's an effectual call. We say, well, why must it be effectual? It's kind of interesting. Um, In John chapter 3, verse 19, listen to what Jesus says. And here's why it's interesting. It's in the wake or in the context of chapter 3, verse 16. It's very close to verse 16, which is that famous chapter that we like to quote and hold up signs at football games, John 3, 16. For those... uh, um, uh, God so loved the world that he gave his only son. It's so popular that I forgot it. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Well, right after that, Jesus says this, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Left to our own devices, we love our darkness. And so God's call on us we, we can't respond to it unless it's effectual, unless, unless there's power behind that call, and God has that power. Isaiah 55, I've already quoted it once. I'll, 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 I'll give you verses 10 and 11 now. This is, again, speaking of the power of God's call. Isaiah records these words of God. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Some of us would say, but wait a minute, doesn't God call everyone? Yes, there is a general call on all people. But again, that ability to respond is what is at issue here. 
There is no one righteous, no not one, no one who seeks after God. Therefore, there has to be an effectual call, one that has power, and it's a call according to his purpose. And I know that some people would say, wait a minute, where does faith fit into this then? You're always talking about faith, but faith isn't even in these verses. Faith isn't, it's bound up in this effectual call. Once he has called us with his effectual call, then we have the faith. The faith is given to us by this effectual call. Then we get into that fourth word, justified. We've already talked a little bit about that in the whole Romans series. We've talked a lot about justification. And in this case here, this is what the word justified means. It means you are in right relationship with the law, having fulfilled it perfectly. You are justified. Remember, this this verb is past tense. Paul says you are justified. In other words, you are in right relationship with with the law, having fulfilled it perfectly. And some of you may be thinking, and here you go, now you're catching on. But wait a minute, I can't do that. I didn't fulfill the law. I can't fulfill the law. Nobody has ever been able to fulfill the law except Jesus. I can't even fulfill the law, my own law, that I make up in my head that I try to live by. I can't fulfill any law. Yes, you're right, but Jesus has fulfilled the law, and if you are in Him, He has fulfilled the law in you. You are justified. When God looks at you, He sees you as perfectly fulfilling the law. The source of this justification is the grace of God. Again, here's here's a little conflation of some verses from Romans 3 that tell the story. Paul writes, no one is righteous, and by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. But we are justified by His grace as a gift through through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. So we are justified. We stand righteous before God now. It's done. And then glorified. We talked on February 16th about the difficulty that we sometimes have in describing and defining the word glorified because we really haven't experienced it yet. It's something that's going to happen in the future. Glorification correlates with the coming of Christ in glory the second time, the second advent, the, the parousia, the second coming of, of Jesus. And, and glorification for believers is also uh, associated with the renewing of creation In other words, glorification comes when everything, ourselves and creation, is made new and everything is the way it's supposed to be. But it's in the future. We haven't experienced this yet. And this is a past tense verb, so Paul is saying it is in fact done in our lives. It's a past tense verb that looks ahead to the future with complete certainty. So we might say, well, why would Paul do this? Why would Paul use a past tense even though it's in the future? John Murray says the only possible reason is that Paul is so certain that this will happen that he speaks of it as if it already has happened. And if you think about it, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6 is stated in the same way by Paul. He writes this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Christ. And this will affect how we live. Why is this important, Frank? Aren't we splitting theological hairs? I think it's important because it could affect the way we live. 
If we live in the promise of our future glorification with God, we will press into the Spirit with much more joy and diligence. Or, or I could say it this way, the Spirit will be able to then press into us with much more joy and diligence in our lives. Here, here you go. Let me ask this question. Let's say Friday, you, you've set up, you're, you're going to go to Pita Jungle or the Essence Cafe for lunch. Okay? Um, you're, you're planning to go there. What preparations are you going to make for going to Pita Jungle or Essence Cafe? For, what, what, what preparations? Are you, you can spend all week thinking about the things that you have to do to prepare to go there. I would argue that maybe there's one thing you need to think about, and that's how to find a parking place at either of those places. Okay? That might be the only thing you need to do, though. You're not fretting about this. You're not thinking about it. You're not preparing for it. Okay? But let's say this afternoon you get home, and the White House calls you. And they're inviting you to dinner with the President and Michelle on Saturday night. No, it wouldn't be Saturday night because you'd have to miss church Sunday. Friday night you're going to go. You're going to go have dinner in the White House with Mr. and Mrs. Obama. How much are you going to prepare for that? You're going to spend this whole next week preparing. I would say that Fashion Square will certainly be on the docket. You will visit there at least three times. You'll be thinking about all the things that you want to say to the president. All of his affirmations, or if you're on the other side of the aisle, all of the complaints that you might have. You might even skip work all week preparing for this trip to be able to go there. See, this is, this is how we can approach this idea of glorification. This is our hope. This is what Paul says is our hope. He, he talked about this in the middle of chapter 8. This is what gives us our hope. This is the guarantee, the promise of what we have to look forward to. And he is so certain about it that he states it as if it's already happened. Everything that happens in life is used for God's good. That's verse 28. And our glorification. That's verse 30. And so here's how this chain links together. God knows you and determines your destiny, which is to be conformed to the image of Christ. So he calls you effectually, which results in your justification and your glorification. Ray Ortland has written a magnificent book on Romans chapter 8. And he says this about glorification. He says, our final redemption is called glorification Because sin is not just bad, it is humiliating. Jesus did not die just to make us good. He died to make us great and glorious and conformed to the image of Him. So if our redemption could be compared to a building project, we could say this. The plans were drawn up in eternity past. The price was paid in advance and in full by Christ at the cross. The foundation was laid in our conversion and we are now under construction and God builds no follies. That's the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me pray and David's going to come up and along with Eugene and the rest of the band and they're going to lead us in our time of response. God, we thank You for these truths and we thank You for Your Word 
We thank you for your love and your affirmation. And God, I just pray that as we wrestle with this, that that we would seek to, to listen to you, to listen to your spirit, to read your word, and to seek the counsel of of other friends and and leaders, and that we would have fruitful conversations about this. God, we thank you for loving us and giving us your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.